You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Enable us to not only understand these principles from your word, but that we'd be able to apply these in accordance with your word. So we just thank you and pray that you'd guide us this morning. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at uh, one aspect of relationships that have to do with forgiveness. Last week, we considered the aspect of unconditional forgiveness. And we got that from the passage in Mark 11.25, in which the Lord said this, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. That's Mark 11:25. There, the teaching almost seemed parenthetical in that text because the Lord was speaking about faith to the disciples. And all of a sudden, he brings, swings the topic of his address into forgiveness. And so... Not only did he address forgiveness, but he did so in a way that means unconditional. There was no conditions in this text in which we have to have the person repent or respond or have any formal uh, essence for us to respond to in forgiveness. It's unconditional and unilateral. It doesn't require anything on the other party. Now, one of the scriptures that we looked at last week was that of Joseph. We remember Joseph uh, in his teens was taken out by his brothers. First, they were going to kill him, and then they decided to uh, sell him into slavery. He was sold into slavery, And he eventually, after suffering false imprisonment, false accusation, being imprisoned, he was exalted. The Lord exalted his position to the second highest under the Pharaoh. God used that position to bring him to a place of providing for all of Israel, Jacob and his sons and their entire family. And when... The brothers came to appeal for food. Joseph was not recognized by his brothers. And when he revealed himself to his brothers, he said this, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold here in Egypt. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. The perspective here that Joseph had and exercised was that of total, complete 
trust in the sovereignty of God. He understood that even though, and later on he said, even though they meant it for evil, we might need some more chairs there. Somebody could help, maybe. Some over here. Even though they meant it for evil, God intended it for good. So they, let's stop for a second. So the brothers, in fear of their lives, told them that their father Jacob wanted Joseph to extend forgiveness. Now, their fear was Joseph somehow would take out vengeance on the brothers. But there was never any real evidence of those brothers exhibiting repentance. And yet, it was forgiveness was fully extended to them. That's just one of many examples. We also looked at David, but there's a very good example of David in the Old Testament when Absalom, his son, rebelled, and he rebelled against his father, and he wanted to take over uh, as ruler over Israel. And as David was fleeing Jerusalem because he didn't want to destroy Jerusalem in a battle, and he didn't want to uh, go into battle against his own son, he was leaving Jerusalem. As he was doing so, one of the men from Saul's house uh, was running along the hill as David was riding out with his men. And let's look at the account. It's in um, 2 Samuel 16, verses 5 through 14. 2 Samuel Chapter 16, a very interesting narrative. Beginning with verse 5, 2 Samuel 16. Now when King David came to Behurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came. And he threw stones at David and at the servants of the king. Now stop and think about this. What was King David known for? He was a great warrior, but he was also known for his love for God. But yet he was feared by many. Here's this man running along the hillside above David, apparently, throwing rocks down and cursing the king. Now, did David have any right, or did he not have the right to carry out some punishment for this man as the king? Absolutely. And let's look at what happens here. He threw stones at David and at the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also, Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, 
and the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your evil because you're a bloodthirsty man. Think of that. He's throwing rocks, cursing the king. He was even kicking sand, one of the translations says. He was kicking the sand down at King David. King David is surrounded by his mighty men. You ever think about that? These men were not just parading along. These were warriors. These men that surrounded David would die for him. They could have taken him out just like that. Look what happens then. Verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. Now, I must admit, if I was King David and my right-hand warrior saw this man and I was being cursed by this foolish man, I would be very tempted to say, carry out that deed. He would have had full reign to do that. He could have done it easily. But look at David's response, verse 10. But the king said, what have I to do with you, sons of Zariah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, see how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more now may I, this Benjaminite, Benjamite, let him alone and let him curse. For so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite them and cursed as he went. He threw stones at him and kicked up the dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. Think of that scene. It's so graphic. I love that scene. I like those kind of things anyway. But when you think of David, this mighty king, and his mighty men, he could have done anything. He could have taken, uh, Abishai could have taken out Shimei, with not even a second thought. David, on the other hand, understood somehow that under God's sovereignty, he allowed this man to carry out this foolish act. He was cursing him in front of his men, in front of all of his troops. David didn't do anything to resist it. He let it go. There's an example of unconditional love. Now, I know some of you here are Old Testament scholars, so I'll give you the end of that story. When we get to David's deathbed, Solomon's there. He's given him the last instructions. The very last words out of David's mouth was to instruct Solomon to take care of Shimei. Now, we don't know, I don't know exactly what the time period was from here until David died, but there was a long period of time. David never carried out any retribution 
against Shimei during that time. In fact, Shimei, being afraid for his life, appealed to David. David says, I'll not take your life. Not why I'm on the throne. So he didn't. But he gave instruction to his son, Solomon, to do so. So we may wonder, wait a minute. You're saying on one hand that he's given unconditional forgiveness. He's allowed him to live. And there he's instructing Solomon to carry out what was necessary, that he would have the wisdom to know what to do. Well, basically, he was giving him a parameter of Shimei is going to go to the grave. One of the translations in the original says, take his hoary head to the grave. Gray hair, hoary head, that's what it translates. Solomon, he didn't carry out that deed just ruthlessly, but in wisdom, he went to Shimei and he said, okay, you can stay within the parameters of Jerusalem, but you step outside Jerusalem and you will pay with your life. He gave him that freedom. He could do anything he wanted. He would be protected within the limits of Jerusalem. He step outside of Jerusalem, it would mean his life and cost him his life. Eventually, Shimei, being an unrepentant man, did so. Solomon took his life. So what we see here is the question. Was David exercising retribution on this man? If so, how do we look at that as forgiveness? Well, I looked at something on this from Matthew Henry. He said this, David's instruction to Solomon proceeded not from personal revenge, but a prudent zeal for the honor of the government and the covenant of God that had made with his family. The contempt of which ought not go punished, surely that is what David waited until he was on his deathbed to order that Shimei be punished. This way, no one could say that David did it to preserve his own honor. So in other words, David did not give this instruction to Solomon to do so while David was alive. And Solomon granted Shimei the freedom to be obedient to the authorities over him. Solomon was now king. He gave him orders not to leave Jerusalem. Shimei, being a rebel, never showed any repentance. He violated that order from the king, and it cost him. But we have to look at here is there's parameters uh, as we exercise in a relationship. David honored his word that he wouldn't kill him in his lifetime. But because of this man's unrepentance, there was a consequence to his rebellion. When we forgive somebody, it doesn't mean that that forgiveness will not carry through with some form of consequence of that individual's sin. That isn't up to us. But when God calls us to forgive, we're to do so from our hearts. Now, having said that, I need to ask this question. And I want 
to think of it in terms of a biblical response. Are there times when God commands us to confront somebody? Absolutely. Are there more than one scripture that speaks of such things? Yes. The New Testament is replete with scriptures that talk about confronting somebody in sin. Now, let me ask this question. Having looked at last week and first part of today, the aspect of forgiveness, when do we confront and when do we not confront? Okay. Do you hear what Ron said? When it when a person is sinning against God's word, then we need to address that sin. And if a person affronts us or offends us, we have the capacity to forgive that individual. But there's a caveat there. We're, we have to think about this. If somebody sins against us, and they're unrepentant about that sin, would we not go to that individual? We could perhaps forgive that and not take an offense. But if we see somebody living in a sinful lifestyle and there's no evidence of repentance, would it not be an act of love to go to that individual, to come alongside, as Paul says in Galatians 6, if anyone's in a snare, you or a spiritual, go to such a one in the spirit of gentleness, looking unto yourselves, lest you too stumble. The thought or concept there in Galatians 6, 1, is that of one being spiritual. What does that mean? Let's look at that aspect first. Does that mean that they have gone to seminary? Or they have a position in a church. What does what does that spiritual mean, Linda? There it is. Do you hear what Linda said? Those who are in a right relationship with God, walking by the Spirit, that's those who are spiritual, submitted to the Word, and keeping short accounts with sin. That's the qualification. So as we consider this, confrontation would be an act of true love. Would it not? Yet, why is it when you look at a doctrine such as this and address this, many recoil? Uh, John MacArthur did a teaching on this for several Sundays on the Sunday evenings. And he received a letter from somebody. And it was a woman who had heard the series on discipline. The letter contained, and I'm paraphrasing, something like this. Dear Pastor MacArthur, I heard your teaching on discipline and church discipline, and I was astounded. 
How could you, as a loving pastor, ever confront somebody and then if they don't do what you think they should do, take them before the church? Now, isn't the church a place for people to be healed? And didn't Jesus minister to those that were in sin? And on and on, attacking the very essence of what the Word of God says. Now, God's Word commands that. In fact, the Lord himself gave that command in Matthew 18, which is a text that we're going to examine today. As we think about that, what has happened in the body of Christ is that discipline and correction has been done inappropriately. So therefore, oftentimes, people recoil to that. They look at it as some form of self-righteous, inconsiderate anger against an individual. Whereas if it's done according to scripture, it's a pure act of God's love. And that's what we want to look at today. Forgiveness. Does it come naturally? No. I have to say, and I admit this um, shamefully, I would like to be like Abishai sometimes. I would like to carry out swift revenge. And that's my flesh. I acknowledge that. But when you look at what God's word says, he calls us to be loving, forgiving, patient. And we're going to look at the many aspects of how we approach somebody. But we want to look at what is the process and what does that look like? So let's turn, if you would, to the book of Matthew, chapter 18. As we look at this text, we begin with verse 15 and just go through 17. We want to understand who was given the instruction in this text. Who was it that was speaking here? The Lord, Jesus Christ. He was uh, addressing the disciples and telling them something that was crucial. Now, as we look at this text, uh, I want us to understand something here. To me, this shows the essence of God's long-suffering, his compassion, and his holiness. All those elements of his attributes are manifest in this outline of how to address somebody who has fallen or taken into a fault unrepentantly. Because it just doesn't lash out. It doesn't just take one effort. It takes a process by which it takes time, prayer, and the proper response in this whole process. If it isn't, it's going to break down. If we don't respond in love and we react, 
out of anger or hurt or frustration, what's going to happen? You'll just push that individual further away. However, if you go in love, you can trust that God will work through this process, which he himself ordained. doesn't mean that the individual will turn or repent, but it gives that opportunity to do so to the individual. Now, we looked at another text last week in Luke 17, 13. It says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. That's pretty clear. It does have a condition there. So what does that mean? Well, it means that our best interest and our desire is to see anyone who is caught in a snare be delivered from that. It means that we desire for all of us to be in a right relationship with the Lord. Now, as you consider this specific address here, it's talking about the ecclesia, the church, the local assembly. You're talking about an individual within a body of believers in a local assembly in which you are trying to restore. That's the context. So let's read it. Moreover, if your brother sins, verse 15, against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now here's here's an important starting place. In an instance where a brother or sister has sinned, you go to him privately. You don't go around and try to bring it before the church or address it publicly. You go privately. Why is that? Why do you think the Lord would give us this instruction so specifically like that? Right. If he hears you, you've won a brother. And you're not going to do damage to that individual's reputation or cause gossip or cause any further problems with that individual. You confine it to that sphere. If he hears you, you've gained a brother. Hearing here is receiving the response to this outreach. That is, responding to truth. Not just, he heard you audibly. It means that he's heard you and had a response from his heart. And as a result of that, you've gained a brother. That is, you've helped in this process of restoration. He's returned back to the Lord in a right relationship. It's a restoration process. You know, when you think of restoring things, we've talked about this in various times, you want to bring him back to the condition he was prior to his sin or her sin. That's the goal. That's what the Lord himself was trying to communicate. Apparently, 
uh, as Christians, we just wrestle with this flesh all the time because that's not the only text. There's all kinds of texts. We're going to look at a few. Time allows. Goes on. If he hears you, you've gained a brother. Now, I want to look at another text, and you don't have to turn there, but I want to I want to just refer to it. Second Thessalonians chapter three. Now, as we look at this text, this is uh, a text that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, and he was giving a warning to the church of Thessalonica to some of the individuals. In verse 10 in chapter 3 of Second Thessalonians, Paul says this, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. For if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, which he had given several admonitions, do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Now, this is an important concept here. What this is talking about, lest we not understand or misunderstand this text, Paul is talking about an individual that has been given instruction that willfully disobeys it. If he does, he's in rebellion to the Lord. Paul is saying, if anyone does not obey our word, this is the word that the apostle himself was directing the church. Then he says, do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. The aspect of this is after you have been through the process which we are currently looking at in Matthew 18. This isn't somebody who just happened to disobey something or inadvertently sinned against somebody. This is talking about an individual who rebels against the truth, is living in a flagrant, continual lifestyle of sin. The process goes back to Galatians 6.1 and Matthew 18. That's how we address it. It isn't that you just stop associating with the individual. You go to him personally, and then... Uh, you go to him in the second part of this text in Matthew 18 with two or three. But look how Paul summarizes this in verse 15 in Second Thessalonians 3. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Here's an important concept. When you're talking about relationships and you're talking about somebody who is a professed believer, you address this in a whole different way than an unbeliever. Unbeliever, we don't have anything to do with. We don't carry out some form of disciplinary process with an unbeliever. Paul forbids that in 1 Corinthians 5. 
That's not our place. But he also comes right behind that and says, but do you not judge those within the church? So 1 Corinthians 5, to recap that incident, there was a man living with his father's wife, which would have been a stepmother, which would have been considered an incestuous relationship, which was a disgrace. And yet nobody did anything. Paul rebuked the Corinthians severely, called them arrogant, proud. They wouldn't even address this sin within their midst. So Paul addressed it, and he gave them instruction, part of which was talking about any so-called brother that we don't engage socially with them. Doesn't mean we don't reach out to them. We never shut that door. But we don't continue on in a social relationship with somebody who is in flagrant sin. Ron. It seems like, though, in the modern church, we've lost what the effectiveness of that because everybody just goes down and treats an expert. <laughs> We're going to get to that. It's a good point. What Ron said is it's lost its power somewhat in the contemporary church because if somebody's uncomfortable and they get into sin, pretty soon they pull away. You reach out to them, pull away further. Next thing you know, they're down the road somewhere. Or, you know, So we have this real uh, problem in the contemporary church today. We look at that and we say, oh, well, that's somebody else's problem. I'll give you an example. When I was uh, down at in Kootenai County, there was a situation like that in which uh, the whole process was carried out, and I think biblically so, good attitudes. People work with this individual trying to draw him to a place of repentance, praying for him, reaching out to him, went through all these steps, which we're going to look at further. And it came to a place of excommunication. What did the person do? Left there, went a couple of miles away to another church. Well, I, I did this. I, we had a lot of group of pastors that met frequently. And when I was made aware that the individual did that, I went to the pastor and I said, you know, I need to just talk with you about a situation, and it's already been made public. I didn't give him any details, but I said the process of discipline was carried out, and the person went out from the discipline. They're now fellowshipping your church. Well, the pastor said, well, you know, maybe he's changed. And I said, that, that's hopeful. But nevertheless... You know, if that's so, then there, there's some things that need to be done. Long story short, the pastor called shortly after that, had the same identical problem there that took place there. So it just transfers, keeps going until the individual repents. So it isn't a matter of micromanaging individuals. We shouldn't try to do that. Judy. 
they find a spiritual power. Right. Okay. The comment that Judy made, sometimes a person will just go somewhere where tolerance is the doctrine of the day. Well, we need to realize that this isn't something that we're trying to police. This isn't something we're trying to manage people's lives. This is the very essence of Christianity. We should be walking in a manner worthy of our calling. When we turn from that, we bring shame on the body of Christ. We bring shame more so on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not a small matter. It isn't something that we should, you know, be fearful of. It would be something that even though it would be uncomfortable, I don't say it's ever comfortable, but it's something that we should care enough about one another and God that we exercise loving outreach to help restore somebody who's turned away. Ron. The other aspect of that that I've thought about is if the church is doing what they really should be doing, when that person is excommunicated, they'll miss miss the love and the caring. Oh, yeah. See, that's part of the framework. Let's go back now to Matthew 18. This is part of the process. Now, verse 16 says, but if he will not hear, in other words, if he doesn't respond to one man going to them, the individual that was offended, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Well, that's an Old Testament concept taken out of Deuteronomy. And the Lord used that. What they did in that context was if there was a necessity to establish a fact, then there had to be more than one witness. One witness could get it wrong, misunderstand, or have slanted motives for what they were doing. But you take three people, and we're going to talk about who that should be. Three people and... The purpose of that is for the one individual to appeal to the fallen individual or the one that's in a snare. The other two should be there observing and also making an appeal to that individual to repent. And that can be established then in the hearing of two or three people. That way it brings more to bear on the individual, it's a powerful thing. When this process begins, God made it that way for a purpose. And when you get to that point, let me ask this question. What should be the consideration? Who would you bring to that process? There you go. You hear what Brian said? Galatians 6, 1. Ye who are spiritual. You who are walking in the spirit. You who are under the authority of God's word. In a right relationship with the Lord. It doesn't have to be any specific person, but the person needs to be in a right relationship with God. And let me say this. 
that person or those persons should be mature enough to maintain the biblical uh, standards of confidentiality. You're at this stage. One person's gone. Now they're bringing two or three. When you do so, that stays in that sphere of confidentiality. Those who are involved in the process need to be in communication about praying for the individual, and that's good. But it shouldn't go outside of that. Steve. I've experienced this a couple of times, and, and I'm curious to know which, which way would be the correct method. Whereas, as, uh, let's say I've sinned and so against you, and so you come to me, and we talk about it, but I'm not repentant. And so now you're to bring one or two others with you. And I've, I've seen it done where you would maybe get a couple spiritual friends, tell them the situation, tell them the sin I'm in, what I've done, and you would all three be coming to me to try to win me back. And I guess that's how I saw it when I was uh, younger, but I experienced it differently once, which I thought was interesting, um, where the person coming to me the, the second time uh, did not bring two people that felt the same way, but really were uh, not knowledgeable of the situation at all, just came as a witness of the mm. confrontation. Okay. So, so they would come and, and did something, and so the one or two others was simply a spiritual witness um, and therefore would have avoided you, know, you having to, I don't know, potentially gossip or explain the situation to them, but you were just doing it. So it could have been any, any other believer, not, not someone else, a group trying to convince me. I'm curious which of those sounds more correct. Okay, it could be either way, Steve, because the goal is the same. Uh, when you bring two others in, uh, it would not be inappropriate for them to be appraised of why you're there. You don't have to give graphic details. Just that the individual's in sin. This person who is initially involved should be the one communicating directly. The other two at that point are able to watch and see, is there any response? Is it an appropriate response or inappropriate? They have to have the discernment, the ability to understand that, and to know how to appeal to that individual. So they're going to be appraised, and they should be to some degree. Not just grab two people and say, come with me, I've got a situation. That could turn into something very uh, counterproductive. You have to maintain the integrity of the concept. And we use all these texts, and yet this is the process. This is the steps in which God has outlined. And yet the attitude, which we'll look at, the ability to understand how to approach him, we have to approach with the whole goal of restoration. If we take two strangers or two people who just say, hey, come with me, I'm going to talk to somebody, I'm offended, and that's all you say, there could be a severe reaction you know, during the process. You should be able to sit down and pray carefully with those that you go with. 
not just grab somebody and go. It has to be thoughtful, prayerful, and very discerning, and with the whole attitude. If there's anybody that approaches somebody with the attitude, they're going to pay, I'm going to get this guy. If that's your attitude, you're in sin. Because what you're going to do is perpetuate that sin. So we have to understand the people that go on the second step need to be spiritually appraised and spiritually prepared to go. And you don't go without that prayer and preparation. Rob. Exactly. Rob has pointed out there is, is crucial, and that's what I'm trying to say. When we go through this process, how we approach it has to be in the spirit of Galatians 6, 1. In the spirit of gentleness, meekness, and the whole essence of love for that individual. We may hate what has transpired, and we should if it's sin. We should hate. Sin. That's the beginning of wisdom. But the individual that's in a snare, we need to have compassion on that individual. If we go and we say hurtful words or condemning words, rather than addressing the individual's best, we could contribute to pushing that individual further away. Our whole motivation is that of restoration. If we look at it in any other way, if we look at this as some form of judicial punishment, then we've missed the whole essence of God's commandments for restoration. We should always look at the individual, and when they repent, and the Lord's going to address this, we better receive them unconditionally. If there's any reservation or bringing up of that sin again, it's been covered. If that person repents, they repent it. They've turned to God. They've confessed it. And if there's evidence of that repentance, which should be, then we need to receive them eagerly. God wants them in the fold. That's why he said in 2 Thessalonians 3, Stay away from them. Don't be involved with them socially, but admonish them as a brother. Pretty clear. The Lord goes on to say, <clears throat> verse 17, and if he refuses to hear them, that's after two or three witnesses, then what do you do? Step three, 
Tell it to the church. So here's a brother who's in sin, hasn't listened to the one individual. Now two have gone. And the third step, tell it to the church. What are you trying to do there? Tell it to the church? I mean, in a day when we have lawyers just waiting for something like this, ooh, it's a lawsuit waiting to happen, right? Should we fear that? Or should we obey the word of God? We're submitted to the word of God. And our concern and love for the brethren should never be hampered by the fear of man. But you better be right. You better follow this in a biblical way with complete integrity. We don't take these things lightly. Any of us should never. Youth. When we talk about relationships, you have friends and I'm sure as adults, you say things carelessly sometimes or hear something that maybe offends you. How do you respond to that? Do you look at it and say, yeah, and then take that and go with it and maybe try to turn others against that individual, trying to formulate uh, perhaps a little bit of chasm there and sides? See, sometimes in this kind of a situation, rather than responding in love to restore a relationship, we polarize. Uh, You know, I really thought that that individual, and then you go on and and you basically slander the individual, trying to gain a sympathy, and you turn others against that individual. That's not the way we should do it. That's putting us in sin. If I'm doing that, I'm in sin. I need to confess it. Repent of it. Our goal is that of love. Speaking the truth in love. Christ thought so dearly and thinks so dearly of the church that he gave specific instructions. He wants the church to be pure. He wants us to be noted by what? Our love for one another. You will know that they are my disciples by the bickering, the chasms, the conflicts. No. By their love for one another. We have to understand what that love is. It's agape love. It's not conditional. It's not a phileo in which you're friends with me, I'll be friends with you. You cross the line, it's pusillism. We hold a whole different approach. That's not agape. We need to be long-suffering. With people. It's a big thing. It's why many churches end up having conflicts, schisms, lots of pain. That shouldn't be. You know, it's okay if somebody chooses to go to another fellowship, but it should never be out of sin, out of unresolved conflict. That isn't the way that somebody should leave a fellowship. Now, there's times, there's doctrinal problems, 
if you've appealed, tried to make things right, and it doesn't happen, then there's problems there with those that are involved in that process. That they haven't responded, then that's a whole different thing. This is the very essence of loving one another and forgiving one another. God was very precise. So he goes on in verse 17. He says, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Now, when you do so, you don't go and give a list, a laundry list of all the things that the individual did. What you do is instruct, excuse me, the body of how to help in this restoration process. You should give explicit instructions if it ever gets to that case. To that point. And the whole body's response should be in prayer for that situation or individual because your goal is what? Restoration. Restoration. Not to shun, to, to carry on some punishment for the individual. You do separate yourself. And as Ron pointed out, that could be painful. That's like a family splitting up. And that's what it should have, that effect. So as we look at this, we have to understand that this whole process is immersed in God's love. Steve. How should this work out when it is family? For example, my oh. brother or my sister, something like that, has gone through something like this and has been, let's say, separated somehow from That's an excellent question. I don't know if I could give an adequate answer, but I'll attempt. Let's just say that there's somebody in our family that has gone through the process of church discipline, has refused to repent. How do we handle that? We're not a part of that local body. We don't know exactly if it was handled right. We don't even know if that was... Uh, a biblical process, I would contact the pastor of that individual's church. I would say, you know, this is my circumstances. I'm brother-in-law, and uh, I understand that he's been excommunicated from your local fellowship. Please, uh, would you explain to me your process, why you did that, how you did that? I'd want to know those specifics because... This has been done poorly in many instances and inappropriately in many instances. Sometimes this is done when it should never be done. So if the pastor says, yes, we did carry out church discipline, we went through the process, uh, we're still praying as a body, hoping that that individual be restored, but this is what's happened. From a, a blood brother, and a brother in Christ, I would then go to that relative and say, look, we're both brothers in Christ. This is the situation. And I would go through what the pastor said to me. And I would say, can I hear your perspective on that? Then you've got to be discerning and prayerful as to how you respond. If he said, yeah, I didn't like that. I don't care about that kind of stuff. I don't, you know, 
They're just trying to police people. And, you know, if you see an attitude of rebellion or if you see an attitude, you know, I, I am repentant. I don't know what else to do. Then you can help in this process. But if the individual is showing rebellion against God's word, then I would uh, carefully consider how and what kind of a relationship I would have at that point. Because you want the same thing. You want that individual to be restored. Brother, in-laws, cousins. Now, I've had that situation. Not where they were excommunicated, but where they were living in sin. And I went to them. No response. I continued to go to them, but I couldn't have any spirit because they weren't really connected. They would go from place to place. So I couldn't. There was no accountability. It finally came to where I had to pull back. I mean, I still have communication and openness with them, but I don't socialize with them. That's what I wanted to ask. It sounds like you you would have less to do with them socially on a very regular, frequent basis. Right. But you would still maintain some contact and uh, show up love. Absolutely. See, that's the key, Steve. We're talking here... If it ever comes to that final step, verse seven, uh, 17, then we don't totally pull away from that individual where there's no contact. We just don't main regular, maintain regular social uh, activities with them. We don't go to lunch with them and buddy-buddy and say we're going to have fellowship because that's the whole purpose of withdrawing. But don't close the door. You close the door, and you may be the very vessel that God could use to help bring truth in that individual's life. Is that consistent with 1 Corinthians 5 also? Yes, absolutely. Those two dovetail. And I was going to go there, but let's go there right now real quick. Oh, wait a minute. we got to stop. Brian, go ahead. I was going to talk to you about that. First okay. <laughs> um, Corinthians chapter 5 has a beautiful illustration of this principle in Matthew chapter 18. In fact, to the degree that the man who was immoral in First Corinthians 5 was restored back to fellowship with the church, and we can clearly see that in Second Corinthians. Exactly. Yeah. But the, the whole key to it is principle is not the man who is in sin. The principle is restoration and the loving effect of restoration to that individual. Absolutely. Did you hear what Brian said? The, when we're talking about 1 Corinthians 5, which Steve brought out, um, beginning with verse 12, it says, For what do I have to do with judging those outside? Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside God judges? Therefore, put away from yourselves that evil person. That is defellowship, not cut off, but defellowship. By the way, I was just chiding Brian a little bit. He's going to Bible school, so we miss him when he has to go often, every so often. Um, okay, good questions, good comments. We're going to have to stop for now, and we'll uh, pick up. Uh, I want to address the youth in this specific issue. Don't shy from coming back next Sunday, because I want to talk about how we deal with that 
in relationships, perhaps public school or unbelievers. How would we approach them and how do we deal with that kind of a broken friendship? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's absolute. We thank you for your love and compassion and patience that you show and demonstrate towards us. We ask now that you bless the service as we continue in our worship and song and praise and the preaching and proclaiming of your word. We just pray that in all this you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.